Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the September 26, 2017 edition of Ask a Leader. Welcome back, Anteaters. Here's to a robust year of developing your life skills and critical thinking. It probably will come in handy with the world's heady issues. Today, L.A. Times business columnist and author Michael Hiltzik will bring his inestimable insights about the headwinds our city is dealing with, negotiating a deal with Amazon for the firm's second campus, HQ2 as it's known. But who could do worse than Scott Walker with a Foxconn deal, eh? Then in the second half, Shahir Mazrit returns to connect the dots with the latest climate change markers. Teachable moments are in surplus, just need for all those so-called students there to be paying attention and uh, step up their game yesterday. We'll be right back after a short break. So returning to the show is my first guest, Los Angeles Times business columnist and author, Michael Hiltzik. He's covered many stories in the bureaus around the world with his nearly 35 years at the Los Angeles Times. He's known most recently for his column about business and economic issues on the U.S. West Coast. He won a beat reporting Pulitzer Prize for co-writing a series of articles about corruption in the music industry with Chuck Phillips and a Gerald Lieb Award for Distinguished Business and Financial Journalism. He's author of five books. His most recent is The New Deal, A Modern History, offers a clear view of antitrust forces at work in the governmental, political, and business arenas with the thoroughness and urgency of a muckraker. And that's what I brought him on for a a couple of years ago. He was on the show talking about the Comcast buyout of Warner, which was a merger that was withdrawn two months after his summer appearance on the show. So he digs mightily and insightfully into the underbelly of business as usual, whether it's British Petroleum, California's water guzzlers, online gambling, telecommunication mergers, American automakers, or even his most recent article about the latest cool $2 donation from the Samuelis for UCI's holistic research. Uh, time might allow brief lip service about that gift. We are so fortunate to have Michael Hiltzik with us because nobody, nobody can cover it like he can. So um, September 9th, Amazon went on the corporate dating circuit looking for one municipality that could fit the best. The deadline is October 10 for them to please send hard copies marked confidential. I've, Michael Hiltzik, I was just thinking, wouldn't it be the crack up if every municipality played right along and wrapped their proposal in much wrap and put it in a large packaging box and sent it to Amazon? Just like <laughs> how right. they sent right. So the final selection announcement will be, and here's the precise timeline in their request for proposal, 
2018. I love that, Jeff Bezos. We noticed. So springing, they're going to spring for $5 billion. It's another big crowdsourcing venture for CEO Jeff Bezos. So Michael Hiltzik, do you think he already knows which city he wants or is he, and he's just trying to get everybody to scramble for the, the highest offer? Well, I have no doubt that, that Amazon has a very good idea of what the shortlist is. Um, there may be uh, a, a few things they want to know. Certainly, if there are a few cities that are uh, sort of equal in their eyes, then giveaways like tax abatements may, may make a difference. But the, the major things that Amazon is looking for, um, you know, it's well within that big company's powers to figure out which which cities and which regions uh, are the best for them. So the project, it features the attributes. We'll, let's talk about what they're looking for. They say they are, they want us to find a city that's excited to work with us and where our customers, employees, and community can all benefit. I can just hear that. So that, as I said, it's $5 billion. Why don't you tell us about all those features they're looking for, and we'll, we'll get into whether or not Irvine lines up with that. Well, they're looking for a place that's got a fairly well-educated culture. Uh, they're looking for a place that's near a major university. Uh, they're looking for a place that has uh, room to expand, that is uh, land, uh, empty land and uh, room, or at least empty buildings. They say they're not averse to moving into a downtown if, if there's um, uh, building stock available. Um, things like that. Um, they're looking for a place that's got good internet connectivity, uh, cell phone connectivity, um, cheap electricity, all, all sort of factors that, they're, as I said, they're perfectly capable about figuring out which communities right. have all these things. The only thing that's a mystery to Amazon because it's the sort of uh, arrangement that gets negotiated once, once they pick a place is the level of government support, tax abatements, giveaways, free land, all that sort of stuff. Could Irvine compete? Sure. I think it's got all those qualities, so why not? I, I, I think my, my instinct tells me that since Amazon already is on the West Coast with something in the neighborhood of 8,000 or 800,000 square feet in the headquarters in Seattle, they're probably looking for a different region of the country than the West. Oh, not the same time zone. That's okay. So that that's a big bias then uh, away from what's going on. So I'm looking at the, you know, I I actually I'm from that uh from the Pacific Northwest and I've watched what Amazon has done in that real estate. What what it's done in the real estate dynamics, what it's done sort of in the the locale. I I don't know if you're aware of this Michael, but it for a long time the campus when it was low, a low-slung kind of campus, not like the brand-new uh, skyscraper there in Midtown, but there's, there was no sign that gave it away. They were off the, the uh, out of sight of, you know, the, the brand out there. But then the only thing I thought that gave it away was all of the 24-7 hours of the grocery stores that surrounded that work area. Mm -hmm. So it does, it casts quite the shadow and devouring what, what's there. So... Well, that's interesting then, a different time zone so that they could be pushing out products from a whole different kind of base. 
Uh, right, and and I should say I don't know that to be the case. I mean, well, I don't no, know if they want to be in a different time zone, or to put it another way, I don't know how important that is to their decision. But you know, one would think that they might want to be closer to Washington, where Jeff Bezos, after all, owns a newspaper, and right. and I'm the told Post. the biggest house in in town, uh, and which is a seat of power, political power, if Amazon needs to exercise political power. So it might make sense for them to be somewhere else. Since they say that these two headquarters are going to be co-equal, then, you know, it, it might make sense to be, to, to sort of spread their regional footprint a little bit more broadly than just to be both in the Pacific time zone. And and let's talk about what it, they can bring to the area. That we, I've talked a little bit about what it's, what's sort of taken away, but what what kind of economic development that the that makes everybody so excited to have Amazon be with them? Well, that depends, and I think that's an important question that yep. that civic leaders who are thinking about how much they should give away need to consider. Amazon will bring. It says it's talking about fifty thousand jobs. It says it's talking right. about you know pay scales in the in the range of a hundred thousand dollars. Uh, certainly a lot of construction. There would be a lot of other businesses that would want to be near Amazon to vend to them. So it might bring a lot of economic activity, but that all comes at a cost. And that's one of the, the points I made in, yes, in your my article. column and other coverage is that uh, that means that communities have to build infrastructure. They'll have to build either highways or highway interchanges. Amazon says it wants access to the transit grid. Well, it's going to be rare to find a place that's got a lot of open, vacant land and, and already a developed transit grid. Good so point. That, so that's going to have to be built. Uh, if it wants a connection to the local mass transit system, that's going to have to be built. These things all come at a cost. Uh, at, certainly at first when you bring in you know, thousands of workers, then you have to pay to build schools, you have to hire teachers, you have to do all these things, and that costs money. And normally we would expect the influx of population to bring tax revenue with them, and that would pay for some of these things that have to be done. Uh, if Amazon is insisting on tax rebates or tax exemptions, then who's going to pay for that? Well, it's the rest of the community, and what are they getting for it? They're basically inheriting a lot of costs. They're not going to get paid for it. So so there's this, this basic uh, in, irreconcilability in what Amazon is asking. They want a lot of expensive stuff, but they want somebody else to pay for it. And I think that's a real danger for communities that think this is all going to be Great. It's not. It's going to be a combination of good and bad, and the good needs to help fund the bad. So we'd have to look at, at the household level if the constituents would be on the hook for the underwriting tax rebates and watch their housing values go up the way they did in Seattle, where the average house price now is $730,000. So it's sort of like it's just ratcheting up the expense at the local constituents level. So this is pretty major. So 
Let's talk briefly about the, the pressure, as it were. I'm alliterating about all the, the aspects of this project. The other applicants around the country that are vying for the project, I, I know Raleigh-Durham, they're in there. I know Gary Andy, Indiana got a little press about their full-page ad they took to, in the New York Times to make their case in Denver and, the, and Philadelphia. And as you said, the, the D, where in D.C. is that application coming out? Uh, well, I don't like, know, but there's certainly a lot of sort of rural territory around yes. D.C. I mean, in Virginia, uh, parts of Maryland, outside the Beltway, even West Virginia. So um, I don't think there's any issue of, about getting land. Um, but you know, when you talk about some of these multi-state communities, that adds another question, which right. is, if, for example, uh, Amazon were to decide to build in Kansas City, Missouri. What if Kansas City, Missouri offered them all sorts of tax rebates, but the, but the workers all came and set down roots in Kansas City, Kansas? Right. How would Missouri benefit from that? And if, if for example, uh, Amazon were to sit down in Virginia, what if all the workers lived in Maryland? So you sort of have these regional questions as to who's actually going to offer these tax benefits and other benefits that Amazon is demanding, and how are they going to be paid for? And we saw that, or we, we can see that, in relation to another big uh, giveaway, which was Wisconsin's giveaway to Foxconn, right the big on. electronics manufacturer, $3 billion over time in, in tax breaks for Foxconn to move to Wisconsin. But... The location where it's moving is so close right. to the state line that that the the Illinois workers uh, the, the workers may all be living in Illinois and and thus adding to the Illinois economy in their own spending and and what will Wisconsin get out of this? It may be nothing but cost cost all the way to twenty 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 no twenty forty two it goes a considerable length so. A negligible bent. For, for, for those of you who've just joined me, my guest is Los Angeles Times prize-winning business columnist and author Michael Hiltzik. We're talking about the Amazon Headquarter 2, and we were, uh, we're looking at what Irvine's package is now to be proposed. We know that Donald Bren is personally involved in making the case for this area. The, the city council's sort of involved. We know there may be other developers. And to quote the Irvine Company spokesperson, I don't know if Donald Brand actually says himself, we're uniquely qualified to meet Amazon's needs. They're, they're all in with getting this package. Those that are, those my, my inner sanctum uh, sources are very aware of all of the sort of major leaguers that Donald Brand is bringing in on proposing this package. So what would you like to say about this sort of dynamic and the portfolio and the the mantle that these applicants bring to this process? Well, I think that probably if Amazon moves <laughs> to Irvine, it would be good for the Irvine company. It, yeah, um, it does, what doesn't it know, help them with? Does it, you know, is it really uh, unique? Um, I think that's probably doubtful. I mean, it's got a lot of the benefits and amenities that Amazon says it wants. It's, you know, it's got UCI nearby. It's got... Uh, obviously, uh, a lot of vacant land to be developed. It's got an educated community. Um, it's got a fairly socially liberal community, which Amazon also says it wants. But a lot of other places have that, too. Uh, cost of living uh, in Irvine and in Southern California is high, which may be a demerit. Mm -hmm. so, so how 
Irvine would shape up uh, in this competition, I, I don't think there's any way to know right now. Okay. And w- the infrastructure is up there for grabs. I mean, we're not, it, it has to be within 45 minutes of an international airport, so we don't really, we can't quite guarantee that in traffic. <laughs> quite. But I guess Spectrum is the area, the site that the Irvine company is trying to direct it toward, which has still quite an extensive acreage of unimproved property that a brand new headquarters could be located in. And so how do you see the real estate market being affected here? I was alluding to that a little bit, but I'd like you to break that down a little bit, what dynamic that Amazon would bring to the, the real estate market. I mean, you talked about the cost of living being up there. So what those up to 50,000 high-paying jobs would do here in Irvine? Well, it's, it's hard to say, except that when you bring demand to a community, obviously prices go up, as you saw in Seattle. Right. It would be good for people who already own homes there, I'm sure. It would certainly make it harder for newcomers to buy homes. Uh, house prices would rise. But, you know, schools would be pressured uh, in terms of their capacity to absorb uh, a lot of people. As I said, these are all costs that would have to be managed in some way. And um, until we see, you know, what Irvine or Orange County or California is inclined to give away, we don't really know who's going to pay. And do you have any... uh sort of rumblings about, I mean, we've, we've got, the, the now that the UCI administration, they've got their Samueli gift, all the, the nurturing they had to do for that, that's been managed and taken care of so they can start putting some energy into this package deal that the that the Irvine company and the city council are putting together. Do you, do you imagine that Howard Gilman and others are trying to add their part to this package? Well, I have no information on that. I would think that if Don Bren says, uh, you know, to Howard Gilman at, um, you know, at UCI, you know, put in your two cents, you know, Gilman would be more than happy to say, you know, we're a major university and we've, you know, got all these schools and and programs. But so would, you know, any university, uh, you know, anywhere would certainly participate. And you're going to have major universities in almost any competing location. So is an incubation kind of function important for Amazon's relocation? So we, we've got a lot of incubators around here. So that doesn't that tie in with his sort of crowdsourcing and his sort of distant visionary kind of economic development thinking? Well, I'm not sure that that's so. I think wherever Amazon goes, it's going to be... It brings it it's with going them? to create an, an incubation effect um, because uh, basically people are going to want to be nearby to sell them stuff. Startups may want to be nearby to pick off Amazon employees who get disaffected with working in this enormously big and growing company. So, oh, interesting. So I don't think Amazon needs to go somewhere where there's already an incubator. It is an incubator. Yeah. I get exactly. Well, the picture, the outcome here, the project would be phased over a number of years, as we were talking about. And so the influence, you just talked a little bit about the influence, that uh, the incubation and the providing some sort of, as you said, disaffected workers might tack on to some of the startups that are here locally. 
So are there other adjustments, other net gains, anything like that, that the for the, the city that you would also bring up? Well, the point that I that I've made that I made in my columns yes. and, and that I'm you know trying to make today is yes. that Amazon uh, doesn't deserve to be bought off to move to a to a community. What needs to happen is that they should pay for the privilege if they want all of these amenities and qualities and features. They're they're expensive and they're valuable. And, you know, if they want to move to some place that's got all that, you know, given how they are going, the impact they're going to have on costs and services, they should contribute their fair share or maybe more than their fair share to make sure that the community as a whole actually benefits instead of, instead of pays. And they don't seem inclined at this point to do that. And no. as long as Don Bren and other developers and civic leaders around the country think that, that this, is, this is an unalloyed good thing and are willing to pay for it, then Amazon is going to get its way. And I think that's dangerous and very costly. And I, I think it's going to be very hard for it to achieve that anywhere in California because this is a state that I think has has viewed with great skepticism the value of, of making these payoffs. So when I look back at the capacity, the, the kind of negotiation abilities of our current city council, and I was quite, it was quite clear to me when the council in 2013 was negotiating with the Five Point communities in the northern part of the, the the newly annexed area around the Great Park in November of 2013, it didn't, and there was a different mayor then than now, but I just would like, as we're closing this up, if you had any thoughts, I have concerns about the extent to which the city council would be able to negotiate firmly terms that are attractive to the city and because of how I didn't see the kind of leverage exercised in their negotiations with five-point communities in November of 2013. And I thought that this is a precursor of their ability to deal with a much bigger fish. Well, I don't see how one city can possibly manage this by itself because, as I said, whatever, you know, whatever the city offers, it may be offering for benefits that neighboring cities actually exploit. So, right. and you know how difficult it was to get the Great Park going. I mean, how many years did that take? Um, and that's because there are a lot of jurisdictions and a lot of competing interests. And that's the same a, thing that's going to happen with this project. And the bad economy. I mean, that sort of, sort of put everything on stall that sort of tested some people's patience with how to build some kinds of institutions like that. But so Well that's fair enough, but in but in a good economy as right. you know we, exactly. we have at the moment, there are going to be a lot of other competing issues, a lot of other competing interests. So none of this is clear cut and um, you know, and it can't be managed by Costa Mesa or Irvine or or maybe even Orange County all by itself. It's going to need a lot more, and, and that's going to be complicated to arrange. 
Well, that you are the man to cover this with us today. You've been getting a lot of reactions from in the I'm watching on Twitter, among other places, with your article that came out Sunday about the $200 million gift of the the Samuelis for the for the health the, complex. The, the well, the health complex, but for the the type of health delivery that it's oh, integrated. It, well, the integrated. There's another one I want, so it's kind of a key word here. I'm hearing from scientists that are in the community here, the very adjacent to the radio station, how flaky this all appears. So maybe as a closer, this this sort of unwieldy last closing here with. Your uh, reaction about the the reaction you're getting with your calling the spades a spade here with how this may be obligating the uh, the university with uh, going down a very odd and different research path with that very big gift. Well, as you said, it's a very big gift. Uh, it's got a lot of weight. UCI says uh, the Samueli family, that's Henry and Susan, are not going to have any real say in who gets hired. Uh, for some of these faculty positions that they're funding. We don't know yet exactly what the gift uh, agreement says because we haven't seen it, though we have asked for it. But the point I made uh, over the, the weekend is that um, because the Samwellies are very outspoken believers in, uh, as you said, flaky, yeah. flaky medicine and treatments that are not scientifically uh, validated, UCI is going to face a lot of pressure and a lot of scrutiny about the extent to which they absorb some of this stuff into their curriculum. And the point, I, the other point I made is You're that right. the early signs are not that encouraging because an earlier contribution or donation that the Samuelis made uh, went to a center or institute inside UCI Health that pervades a lot of these untested and, in some cases, debunked treatments. And so UCI is sort of walking into a minefield here, and we don't know how well it's going to navigate it. But uh, the point I made is that it better be, you know, really ready for scrutiny and aware at the, uh, the potential dangers, because this is a very, very big gift. It's the seventh largest gift of all time to a public university. Which does something. So, <laughs> Those numbers just do, the, the, the weight of that gift certainly does cast a, a reason for pause here. Then it's the homeopathic. I think that's, that's what I was trying to capture <laughs> earlier. It's how much of a charter this is for homeopathic research that may or may not be borne out in solid research. So, Well, well I think legitimate scientists would say it better not be any sort of a charter because homeopathy... Yeah has been proven by clinical trials to be claptrap and bunk, and it doesn't work, and it should not be part of any uh, offering by a creditable medical institution. But it is at UCI because of the previous Samueli contribution, and that's a problem. Yeah. So we'll stay tuned with that. Maybe we can have you back again to talk about that. Well, Michael Hiltzik, it's been a real pleasure. You've actually you've made a very clear case for what assumptions need reconsidering here locally about the the package deal for Amazon, and and also we're going to give our critical thinking best to what the sort of Samueli influence is here. With I mean, it's a lot of money, so that. It takes a lot of critical thinking to sort of counter that with the kind of general 
funding sorts of necessities for public universities of the last many decades. So, well, Michael Hiltzig, thank you for being on the show today with us. My pleasure. Michael Hiltzig is the columnist with the L.A. Times, and he was uh, here to talk about Amazon. So we'll be right back after a, a, sh- a short station break, if you will. Thanks for staying tuned. That was Sportive Tricks, and that was Rocky Road, haha, <laughs> for the obvious reasons. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. My next guest today is Dr. Shahir Mazri with a renewed sense of urgency in messages connecting the latest severe weather events to human influences of climate change throughout the world. Shahir specializes in air pollution exposure assessment and epidemiology at UCI, focusing on exposure assessment relating to particulate matter and other ambient air pollutants. And man, there's particulate matter around here from that corona fire. I, I'm checking that. That ash has fallen here. But that's that's the big and intermittent stuff. You're talking about the stuff that's always around us that we don't smell, touch, or know about. So anyway, among the other elaborate models he's developed and applied, a novel satellite-based air pollution exposure model to estimate air pollution exposure among U.S. military personnel deployed to Southwest Asia and Afghanistan. He's also an adjunct faculty member at the Schmid College of Science and Technology at Chapman University. And he earned his Bachelor's of Science in Environmental Science from UCLA and both his Master's and PhD degrees from the Department of Environmental Health at the Harvard School of Public Health. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Shahir Masri. Thanks for having me. And we are going to jump in as I was doing some podcast business. UCI colleague was calling in Yesterday, Buffalo, New York, it was 94 degrees, and I, I believe that was even, was I don't think it was even noon yet, so I'm going to let that sink in, Buffalo in the 90s, folks. So now, let's go to the ferocity, the intensity of the most recent extreme weather and the wildfires throughout not just the nation, but all over the world. Did it surprise you? Did the in the sort of the chatter the around the water cool of scientists globally did that surprise scientists? Uh, yeah, I think that it's absolutely surprising. Um, however, on one hand, we've been hearing for quite a few years, uh, longer than that, climate scientists warn us of increased intensity from extreme weather events: floods, hurricanes, uh, droughts, heavier downpours. So, on one hand, you know you have that. However, knowing exactly where any given hurricane is going to fall, how big any given hurricane is going to be, where fires are going to take place is not, you know, that's any meteorologist's best guess. And to see so many events stacked one on top of each other, as we've seen in the last month, uh, I mean, that's certainly surprising, I think, to all of us. Well, the modeling, when we're thinking of Hurricane Irma, the, the modeling it can't. I, I'd like for you to explain that because this this is like public education climate change here while while you're on here because it's not not enough dot connecting is taking place. But that the dynamics, the meteorological dynamics of the the weather, the air pressure changes over the Arctic were forcing masses that stalled the move of 
Hurricane Irma, so that that rain did nothing but dump in one place for four to five days. Yeah, that's true. I, I mean, and in the case of uh, Harvey, we had a hurricane. Typically, you'll see big storms such as uh, Harvey. I meant Harvey, not Irma. That's oh, okay. a problem with so many hurricanes. Right. I it's mean, this Harvey. is unprecedented. Yeah, we had a, a hurricane system. Typically, as they move closer to shore, as they gain intensity, you'll see a turning up of water on the surface, and usually that'll be displaced by cooler water underneath. As that happened, as Harvey made its way towards landfall, the underlying water was actually just as warm as the surface but water. But deep, deep down, it was still pretty darn warm. Right, so you didn't get that negative feedback effect that sort of can dampen a storm as it approaches shore. Uh, instead, you got a sustaining of that, of that uh, intensity and actually a growth of the storm. And uh, even beyond that, once the storm did make landfall, as you noted, there was so much torrential downpour, water levels rose so high that the storm was actually able to continue behaving as if it was still over the ocean when in fact it was over the land. And that's just because the flood waters had just increased so greatly. So were there su other surprises about this? Or the, the, I, I still use, I've used it before on the show that it was like an airport where the, the aircraft are sort of banking in. They're all coming. Here comes another hurricane that's going to come in and land. Here comes, and here comes Maria coming in and landing now. Yeah, I was mean, was that a surprise? Yeah, I think it was a it was a surprise. However, there's you know so much, uh, like I said, there's been so much mounting evidence from the scientific community of, and and projections of things to come. And then, as you noted, the the fires up in the northwest, or actually the recent fire this morning that I think is still burning. We have been seeing since 1986. In fact, the year I was born. Uh, there's been a fourfold increase in major wild wildfires. Um, this is from comparing it to the 1970s and early 80s, and a six-fold increase in the area burned. Uh, we've seen a similar trend actually up in Canada. The wildfire season in the Northwest and the Western U.S. in general has increased by about 78 days uh, since the 1950s, 60s, 70s uh, time. That's uh, pretty significant. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the duration of fires has increased from about one week in those days to about five weeks. And, you know, why is all of this happening? Well, we're seeing earlier snowmelt. We're seeing higher summer temperatures, a longer fire season in general, higher elevations, which previously didn't turn into major fires, are now dry enough and turning into major fires. More fodder, yeah. More fodder. And, uh, and yeah, a longer grow, um, dry season. And, you know, things, things like this have sort of been mounting in, in, uh, in terms of evidence. And now we're seeing sort of the effects of increased prolonged dry vegetation really translate into a huge, huge fire. And we're seeing what they call clusters, uh, complex fire co complexes, where multiple fires are taking place and then ultimately merging into a huge fire. This is, these are things that um, are, are very extreme and potentially going to get worse. So I'm not sure about the fires, but back to the hurricanes, how were the meteorologists doing this time? I mean, we know there's sort of categories of, you know, enlightened to not not lightened at all. Right. Meteorology. How were they? How was their job in covering the hurricane events? Um, I was a little bit. I mean, I think their job of covering the events was was fair in terms of their integration of the climate change component into okay. all of this. Well, I feel like there were definitely some shortcomings there, particularly on the te on the television. So. Watching, um, you know, I don't want to name any particular news station because, to be honest, I, I saw this occurring uh, throughout d various stations. Really? But, uh, yeah, I didn't see the climate change keyword come up very often. And it was a complete letdown because 
this is a time where we should be connecting the dots. It's a um, teachable moment. It's a teachable moment. And, and you know, talking about climate change is, uh, is not taking away from the severity and, and the uh, intensity of what's going on. Um, I think we're really just missing uh, an opportunity to really galvanize some uh, awareness around this issue. So maybe is it not in the meteorologist DNA just to back off of that local map where they're always, you know, they're gesturing and using all those little funny graphics to sweep movements and masses and things like that. But is it not their thing to be able to point, oh, up in the Arctic, there is an influence on why Harvey's not moving anywhere. Is that is that part of the problem or do meteorologists, they get a chance to to be more expansive about the, all the the systems that create the the outcomes that people are struggling with. You know, it's hard to say exactly why uh, a given meteorologist w- decides to not connect the dots. I mean, I would suspect that uh, most meteorologists are aware of, of what's going on. You don't really know what kinds of pressures are falling uh, upon uh, meteorologists or if that's considered getting into a political issue, which sadly you know, that's often the case, but it really shouldn't be thought of as that way. Uh, but the issue has become so politicized at this point. Y- you know, it's very difficult to say why meteorologists aren't really pointing this out. Um, I've seen it covered in, a, in some uh, newspaper coverage, but still seeing it largely absent on the uh, television. And this is uh, one month or so after Al Gore was just featured on CNN for a whole hour at 8 p.m. talking about climate change and, in fact, talking about increasing storm intensity. Not one month later, we've seen three hurricanes, uh, and making not, the point. Yeah, and not a whole lot of follow-up on on his comments. So, I am ready. Strap, fasten your seatbelt. So uh, that Scott Pruitt, administrator for the Environmental Protection Agency, it's a cabinet-level position. We just don't call it secretary's administrator. Was very clear in the media that the the storm amidst occurring, it was not an appropriate time to bring up the connection with climate change. Your reaction to that teachable moment? Right. I mean, so this is not uh, this is somewhat a, of a predictable response from the administrator. Um, you know, all I can say is, you know, I don't see I think this is a perfect moment to talk about, uh, you know, the, the climate change connection here. Uh, you know, if somebody gets killed due to a racist act, we, you know, take the incidents in, in Charlottesville recently. Uh, wow, I see that coming. Okay. Yeah, surely we've got to mourn the loss of, of that person's life, but we've also got to address the uh, systemic problem of racism. And uh, fortunately, that was a response by a lot of people in the wake of that event. In the case of these, cl- uh, these, these extreme weather events that we're seeing, we've got to surely mourn the losses that we've been seeing in Houston and Florida and up in the Northwest and all around the world, and uh, it, both losses of life and property and whatnot. But we've also got to address the underlying systemic uh, root of the problem, which is the climate change problem. Well, also, if the sup- the existing super funds are now inundated with floodwaters, and you could say that the whole municip- the whole metropolitan area is a super fund with the toxic brew that's been flooding all over, so th- we can safely assume there are going to be carcinogenic sorts of outcomes from all of this. So it's sort of like we should be looking at how complicated all this is and dial up our game in understanding this so that for purposes of public health, we're responding appropriately as soon as we should be. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, you you mentioned very good points right there. I mean, there this is more than just uh, destruction of property or um, floods in and of themselves. These are floods loaded with toxic chemicals. Um, we saw in the case of Harvey, um, this chemical plant that was going to explode for quite some time. Everybody was holding their breath. Yeah, we've we've got to respond quickly to these events, but we've also got to respond in a way that prevents these events from occurring um, in the future. And that starts with not only better hurricane preparedness, better flood preparedness, but it has to do with also more, as I saw, uh, as, as I mentioned, more um, root of the problem prevention of, you know, like I said, related to carbon emissions and things like that. What we're consuming there. For those of you who've just joined us, you're listening to Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming on the web at KUCI.org. My guest is Shahir Masri, an environmental health scientist at the University of California, Irvine, where he's conducting research on air pollution and the related human health impacts. And we're talking about connecting the dots. Let's make this the teachable moment uh, right now where there are moments coming up short. Let's talk about the the response from national, as is congressional leadership, is the GOP orthodoxy denying the connection of human activity to climate change. Is that orthodoxy beginning to loosen up, starting with Senator Graham and his starting to buy in with carbon pricing? Uh, I would say that, yes, it is starting to loosen up. There has been, you know, just the instance that you just mentioned, uh, you're also aware of the House Climate Solutions Caucus. Uh, for listeners, that's a, a caucus compri- comprised equally of Democrats and Republican They joined as a pair. Joined as a pair. Uh, and back when I gave a climate talk in February, that caucus, uh, which, by the way, is committed to addressing the uh, solutions and of climate change and accepting climate change as a reality, that caucus was 24 members back in February. So that was 12 and Democrats, 12 Republicans. Now we're up at 56 members. So that to me is reason for hope. That does su- suggest there's a shift going on. It's not clear necessarily as to whether that's a shift in the perception of these politicians or if this is a shift in the perception of their constituents, which they're responding to, But um, and potentially both. But nonetheless, a shift is apparent. And I think that is something that we should be very happy about. Having said that, it shouldn't leave us complacent because there's still so much to be done and there is still a paucity of GOP leaders that are still getting on board with this whole climate change uh, thing. So Shahir, are you seeing there, is there a connection? Are these storms being used to, to prove a point that these are unprecedented in intensity and in size? Is, are you, you know, have to, you can put the puppets down now to explain this. You can just point to some graphic events now is that helping make the case yeah i mean i think that are you having your teachable moment based on those with them i think that people do listen to mother nature and and uh you know it's easy to deny graphs and figures but it's hard to deny a a storm that you know has not been witnessed in your town for generations uh when you have people in in you know the 70s 80s uh you know years of, of age saying that they've never seen anything like this, I think that drives a very important message home. And and it's not something that um, should be a, uh, you know, we shouldn't look at it as, as a teachable moment from a um, pedantic standpoint or, or any kind of I told you so standpoint. This is something that we ought to really be taking seriously moving forward because keep in mind, we all have the same goal. We want to see these uh, disasters not take place. So the question is, how do we prevent these disasters from taking place? And that is where we really need to start seeing 
the government, people and the government, really uh, listen to what our climatologists, our climate scientists have been saying. Well, why don't you give us a t one takeaway that you would like with, from this radio platform for people to follow up on now with maybe there, where there's somebody just hanging, hanging over needs to be pushed into committing to the, either the Climate Caucus or having forms. We know that Mimi Walters is going to be in town I this week, the, the Beckman High School. So people check, check her, her website. But are, are there any takeaways you want to offer listeners for getting a move on with the aftermath of all these storms? You know, I think that uh, what you just alluded to is important. If every listener could translate to a phone call to your local congressman or congresswoman, asking him or her to join the House Climate Solutions Caucus. Uh, the more these political figures that we can get in on this panel that is committed to addressing climate change and accepting the reality of climate change as the scientists have laid out, uh, the better. And the quicker, the better. So this is, this is something that you know, we really need to start seeing government action on. And it's really going to start at the grassroots level, people calling their politicians. So if we weren't completely freaked out now. I'm not, I'm not sure what can freak out a, a human race about what's coming as the planet heats up. Shahir Masri, it's always good to have you on. We've got an open invitation for you to come back any old time and give us all the teachable moments you can muster. Thank you for being on the show today. Well, thanks so much. It's always great to be on. Thank you. That was Shahir Mazri, is an environmental health scientist at UCI California Irvine and conducting research for our benefit, how the air pollution interacts with our own health and then some. I'm going to give you some announcements. We shall so, gun legislation advisory, as I follow up with my quick summary of at the weekend, Last show about the silencers, the SHARE Act, that's House Resolution 2159, which includes that item. It's going to be up for a vote in the House rep representatives early next week, and it's going to roll back existing regulation of gun silencers. It's going to make it easier for anyone to get a silencer without a background check. It eliminates the alcohol, tobacco, and firearms ability to designate and properly regulate armor-piercing bullets. This is closer than the climate change, folks. This is like gun stuff. It's going to loosen the federal law and overrule state laws on the transport of firearms and ammunition across state lines. That means there's somebody's concealed weapon carry permit is there's a reciprocal arrangement allowing that to come to other states. Let that sink in. Tomorrow is going to be a free screening and a panel discussion of Jen Silent, and that will be at the, um, the Suzy Q, 3rd Street, Laguna Beach uh, location. It's, this particular film is about the LGBTQ constituents, the elders who are having to go back into the closet with their dementia because they are not recognized in the residences that deal with Alzheimer's and dementia care. And then finally, I want to uh, mention that KUCI radio training will begin October 10th at 7 p.m. Check out all the training details on KUCI.org. It may change your life, just saying. So that was my wrap. Next week, we'll devote the full hour to Oscar Oscar Taran, director of Dream Center at UCI's Education Center for Partnerships. And the current status of deferred action is going to require our full attention. 
We're going to go out to let Naftali's Dream title track, Blood, take us out in honor of the kosher couple in the West Wing celebrating the High Holy Days. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. <laughs>